All right, hello everyone. Welcome back to the ICU Ed and Toddcast. ICU Ed like education. Ed and Todd Toddcast podcast. I'm your host Eddie, and I'm joined by my co-host Todd. I had some trouble finding Todd today, but luckily all I had to do was walk up to stairs to the MICU, find the group of bleary-eyed residents fighting the look of sheer boredom off their face, and voila. There's Todd droning on and on and on. There's no big programming reminders from me. Sorry, Todd, if you have to speak a little bit louder for me today, because I just got back from the Taylor Swift concert like 10 hours ago. If you did that, you actually got back from a thunderstorm prior to the Taylor Swift concert. <laughs> and during. the, uh, It was actually really humbling because uh, it's incredible to be an arena of 70,000 people who know more about Taylor Swift's discography than I know about medicine. And, you know, probably actually... 60,000 of them would probably choose Taylor Swift as their intensivist if given the choice. I may choose Taylor Swift as my intensivist, especially if the other choice is you. How exactly do 70,000 people shelter in place? (laughs) Very carefully. Are the bathrooms that big? There's no social distancing, let's say that. Yeah, I guess not. The uh, only program reminder I have is that for the next episode, we should have the articles, if any, that drop with the ATS International Conference. So we will be bringing you our reactions to that. If none of those are applicable to critical care, we'll drop a short pod about one of the articles you've had on our docket for a little bit. Uh, A little bit of listener feedback. Yes, you caught me. Todd doesn't know this, but there was a part of the last pod where my voice dropped about an octave. In editing, I realized there was a point that I made that wasn't clear, so I recorded it at home. But unfortunately, it doesn't have the, you know, sound acoustics of our snazzy recording studio. This is actually what Eddie does is is that when he edits these, he takes out all of my good lines and then he edits out all of his bad lines. And that's how it appears that he is of a similar level to I am during these podcasts. We're in a magical land of podcasts and I can be whoever and whatever I want to be. I've been told I have the perfect face for podcasting. Yes. But we don't have too much more reason to delay, so let's just jump right into it. The first article for today is Aid ICU, or Haloperidol for the Treatment of Delirium in the ICU. Uh, It was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in October of 2022 by Anderson Randberg et al. This was a multi-center, blinded, placebo-controlled trial of patients admitted to the ICU with delirium to receive 2.5 milligrams of IV haloperidol three times a day and additional doses as needed to a maximum dose of 20 milligrams in a 24-hour period, which is about five extra doses versus placebo. The primary outcome was days alive. Well, well, can I stop you for a minute? Yeah. You obviously are tired. Are we going to do the mnemonic, eight ICU? I was getting there. I'm getting there. Oh, we're just, this is the tease? Yeah, this is the tease for it. Well, we can, we can jump ahead. They spell out the mnemonic for us in the paper, yeah. which is really nice. It is. Agents intervening against delirium aid in the ICU. That's an A in my book. Uh, just because they spelled it out for us? Yeah, it made it easy. And it was good. Yeah. It's, Agents intervening against delirium? It's, it's reasonable. I give them a solid B+. It could have been HID, Haloperidol, intervening against delirium, HID yeah. ICU. Yeah, I think they probably thought about that and decided that was less optimal than AID ICU. I might make an A- because I thought of a better one just sitting here. Uh, The primary outcome was days alive and free of the hospital in 90 days after randomization. There's also a pre-planned Bayesian analysis that was published in Intensive Care Medicine 2023, which we'll be referencing in our discussion. So Todd, delirium, fluctuating attention and mentation, which is frustratingly common in critically ill patients, also associated with increased morbidity and mortality. But is it just a common symptom of critical illness syndrome, or is it a risk factor that we can intervene on? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think we don't really know the answer, right? Uh, We know that there certainly is an association between delirium, long-term cognitive outcomes, delirium, 
and shorter term outcomes like mortality in the ICU. We haven't been able to tease out if the delirium may be in the causative pathway or if you know, there are confounders that might be the causative pathway and are just associated with both delirium and then causative to, to these outcomes. I will say that one of the things to think about is, you know, we know patients are going to get delirium uh, when they're critically ill. First of all, warning family members of that and explaining it to family members, I think, goes a long way. But secondly, the next question, and this has been a question from in my mind for a number of years, is, okay, I know that, but can I do anything about it? And that, I think, lends itself to your question of, are there treatments that can interrupt or alter this relationship that we've shown many times now between delirium and long-term cognitive outcomes, or delirium and short-term ICU outcomes, or delirium and any of the bad outcomes that they've been associated with? This might just be a gap in my knowledge, but is there an association between the duration of delirium and negative outcomes? Yeah, I think the data say that the severity of delirium, which in general is duration of delirium, is associated with worse outcomes. It's hard though, right? Because we also know that the duration of delirium is very much associated with the severity of illness and the duration of mechanical ventilation. And, you know, it's not a surprise if I sat here and said to you, the longer a patient's mechanically ventilated, the more likely they are to have worse outcomes. You're going to say, you know, thank you, Todd. That's just earth shattering. And maybe we should put a headline in a newspaper on it. Just like everything else you say. And as far as prior literature, and data in this field, MindUSA is the only one that jumps to mind to me. Yeah, I think MindUSA is probably the premier previous RCT. There were some small RCTs that you know, are interesting in that they show that you can do it. I don't know that their outcomes extrapolate very well to a generalized population. Uh, Mind USA obviously was a RCT designed to answer a question of whether or not commonly used treatments, Haldol and Ziprazidone, commonly used in the ICU to try and treat delirium, whether or not that actually treated delirium in a placebo-controlled study. Uh, suspect that we'll spend some time talking about Mind USA and comparing it to aid ICU here in the next, you know, 10 minutes. Yeah, it's probably worth just mentioning that one of the major criticisms of MindUSA was kind of their breakdown of hyperactive and hypoactive delirium. It was 90% or close to it of hypoactive delirium. And when you talk about haloperidol or ziprazidone, you're usually not thinking about your hypoactive delirium. You're worried about your hyperactive delirium person. Yeah, I agree with that. For a long time, there was discussion about three types of delirium, hyperactive, hypoactive, and mixed. And I always struggled with this because to me, mixed is not both together. It's hyperactive that we treat. And in general, right, we tolerate, quote unquote, tolerate hypoactive delirium because patients aren't trying to get out of bed. They're probably not at any injury risk to themselves or the nurses, et cetera. But hyperactive delirium, we don't really tolerate very well. We do something in those patients to try and at least treat their hyperactivity and make them safer for themselves, for people that are caring for them, et cetera. I think your point about hyper and hypoactive delirium and differences in the patient populations between Mind USA and Aid ICU is an important one. You know, Mind USA got critiqued because 90% of the patients they enrolled have hypoactive delirium. In Aid ICU, it's about 50-50, a little bit off, but pretty close to 50-50 hyperactive, hypoactive, and obviously a much larger percentage of patients with a hyperactive delirium in Aid ICU than Mind USA. That's probably a good segue into just talking about what they did. So this was a multi-center study performed at 16 ICUs in Denmark, Finland, the UK, Italy, and Spain between June of 2018 and April of 2022, which is through COVID. The patients were adults age 18 or older admitted to the ICU with a positive CAM ICU or confusion assessment method for the ICU or a positive screen on their ICDSC or intensive care delirium screening checklist. 
These two methods are similar. The CAM-ICU is a tool that basically asks if the patient is altered with a fluctuating mental status, and if so, are they able to maintain attention, a series of commands, or answer simple questions like, will a stone float on water? The ICDSC scale is from 0 to 8, where a patient receives one point for each of the following eight categories. Altered level of consciousness, inattention, hallucinations or psychosis, psychomotor agitation, inappropriate speech, sleep-wake cycle disturbance, and symptom fluctuation. And I think to be positive on that screen, you need to hit four of the eight at least. I think what I would say there, Eddie, is is that the details of those is nice to know, but ultimately, I think the important thing, at least for me, I'm not a delirium researcher or doctor, but for me is is that both of them are pretty well validated as a reasonable measure of delirium in critically ill patients, so the population that we're talking about, and the fact that they used both, like mind USA only used the CAM ICU, the fact that they used both to me means that their results are probably a little bit more generalizable than if you just used one or the other, but in general, it's a reasonable way of identifying patients that have delirium. Yeah, I think they use both probably as convenience as whatever that hospital was doing at the time. And I think the other thing to point out there is that there's not neither of these methods, and I don't think there exists a method that really separates the hyper and hypoactive delirium. It's just delirium, yes or no, and then you determine if they're hyperact- hyperactive after. Right. We, if you'd like, we can add maybe the eddy. Uh, addendum to both of those scores where it's how many times have you tried to punch your nurse? Uh, and if that number is greater than zero, then they're hyperactive. And if it's zero, then they're potentially hypoactive. A great start to Nurses Appreciation Week. I already mentioned their intervention, 2.5 milligrams of haloperidol three times a day up to a total of 20 milligrams as needed versus isotonic saline placebo. What do you think of that dose? Which the standard dose or the max dose? The two and a half milligrams three times a day. I mean, honestly, it's not how I use it, right? I usually only use it as needed. I don't think I ever really get up to 20 milligrams. I'm usually using something else by the time I've gotten up that high. But no, I don't schedule it normally. Do, do you, when you give it, do you give two and a half? Like two and a half seems low to me. Yeah. Like but, I think I usually start at five and sometimes I'll give 10. Yeah. But that's also this, that's also saying that you give it as needed, right? So yeah. this 2.5 is like the patient may not need it. You're just going to give them a low dose. It's yeah. the whole quote unquote brain glue phenomenon. Yeah. Yeah, two and a half seemed like a low dose to me. 20 max in a day is getting to the doses that I use, although I think I probably go above that when I'm giving it. Again, I'm using it PRN and for hyperactive delirium a lot of times for the hyperactive part, not necessarily for the true delirium part. They did a little PRN stuff in that they stopped it if you didn't have delirium for two days. And then they could restart it if your delirium came back. And to get in, it wasn't just you were at risk of having delirium and we're going to give you the dose and try and prevent delirium. You had to have delirium to get in. So yeah, I agree with you. It's kind of PRN. It's kind of scheduled, but it's also a little, I mean, it's scheduled. It's scheduled in people who have delirium, not scheduled to try and prevent people from getting delirium. Yeah, no, that's right. And I think also we'll get into it, but they actually really didn't use very many PRN doses if you looked at their like median total doses given. The, the other fascinating thing to me, and maybe we'll talk more about this in the results, is is that they don't seem to use a different amount of PRN doses in the intervention group and the placebo group, which is, to me, kind of a surrogate for how's the delirium going, right? Pretty similar between the two groups. You can tell how Todd, how excited Todd is about talking about this because we're all out of order now. So let's just uh, finish up on what they did. Todd had is men- that a Taylor Swift song? <laughs> no, it's not. At least I don't think so. Let's just finish up what they did. The Todd had already mentioned that if you didn't have delirium defined as two consecutive negative screens, which were being performed twice daily, so effectively one full day without delirium, 
the intervention was stopped. But if you got delirium again while you're in the hospital for that encounter, then they restarted you on either haloperidol or placebo. There was no other use of antipsychotic medication. So for any patient in this trial, that was the only antipsychotic medication they could get. Other adjunctive rescue medications could have been propofol or benzodiazepines or alpha-2 agonists. The primary outcome, like I mentioned, or maybe I was interrupted, was days alive and free of the hospital within 90 days analyzed using a linear regression model for the mean difference between the groups. Their secondary outcomes included days alive and free of delirium and coma at 90 days, free of mechanical ventilation at 90 days, rescue medication used in adverse events attributable to haloperidol. Who possibly would have interrupted you? I don't know, Todd. Is there anyone else in this room? In their sample size calculation, they said they calculated their sample size around a 15% mortality difference, which is a component of the free days outcome. And that seems like a lot. Uh, I feel like that right there would make it hard for this trial to show a difference in the total sample size with 1,000 patients. Yeah, it's a big delta. Like I said, they enrolled a total of 1,000 patients with 510 in the haloperidol group and 490 to placebo. 447 patients had hyperactive delirium on enrollment, and 540 uh, had hypoactive delirium. That doesn't add up to 1,000 because 13 patients were excluded after randomization for not receiving any doses of the study medications. In additional, 24 patients were excluded for refusing consent, leaving 963 patients in their primary analysis. I found it interesting in their consort diagram that 130 patients were not enrolled because they had contraindications to haloperidol. Maybe I'm not looking hard enough for these, but it seems like a lot. They listed these reasons in their supplement being a history of intolerance to haloperidol, Parkinson's, a QTC prolongation, a history of tardive dyskinesia, a history of ventricular arrhythmia, hypokalemia, uh, and a non-pharmacologic coma. So they couldn't have come in with a coma. I think you just don't listen on rounds. How many times on rounds have you said, maybe we should give them some Haldol, and somebody said, well, their QTC is 506. I think, you know, history of ventricular arrhythmias was a weird one. Hypokalemia is treatable, but I I think at least they could have been enrolled later if they had their hypokalemia treated and they were still delirious or they emerged from their coma into delirium, they were still eligible for the trial. I don't, ultimately, I don't think any of this really threatens the validity of the trial, uh, but I just bring it up because the exclusion of coma probably brought up their hyper del- hyperactive delirium percentage. Yep, I think that's a good catch. Table one, baseline characteristics. The median age was 70, 33% female, similar risk factors for delirium and comorbidities. About 9% of the patients had COVID, two-thirds of the patients were medical ICU compared to one-third of the patients being surgical. About 60% of the patients had mechanical ventilation, which could have been CPAP as well. 50% were on pressors and 15% on renal replacement therapy. It was pretty balanced overall and seems about right for what I take care of here if I'm thinking about non-comatose patients with delirium. Mechanical ventilation is another area that I think Clearly, there's a difference between Mind USA and Aid ICU. In Mind USA, you either had to be mechanically ventilated or in shock and have delirium in order to be eligible. In Aid ICU, you didn't have to have that. And it resulted in, not surprisingly, almost all of the patients in Mind USA, 90 plus percent, are mechanically ventilated at the time of enrollment, compared to only 60% in Aid ICU. As you pointed out, that probably is part of the reason they have more hyperactive delirium in Aid ICU. I don't know. It makes me wonder, although I don't know for sure, if that might also be something that might make a difference in the way the drugs work and the effect that it has in the population. Yeah, it's always interesting to me in these trials of mechanical ventilation, specifically how they deal with coma, because maybe our sedation practices are too heavy handed, or maybe it's just like when we are seeing patients enrolling them that I feel like most of the patients when they arrive in the ICU mechanically ventilated are comatose. 
now a lot of that is pharmacologic or related to the RSI medications. But always, I always question when it says, oh, like the baseline population, there are only 25% comatose for this mechanically ventilated population. I'm like, really? Yeah. I mean, I think a little bit of that is US-based. I think we in the US use a little bit more pharmacological sedation than other countries use. And I think that results in more coma in the populations. And if you don't like the results of aid ICU, to quote you know, a song from your adventure last night, if haters are going to hate, then you could say, I don't know if this Eight ICU trial relates to my patients in the U.S. because I think they're different. I think I sedate them differently, and that might make a difference in delirium and treating delirium and outcomes from delirium. My goodness. You've got a great great look on your face. I don't have anything to say. I'm just going to move on. The uh, separation between groups is easy in a placebo-controlled trial or easier in a placebo-controlled trial. But overall, the haloperidol group got 8.3 milligrams of haloperidol per day. Remember, 7.5 milligrams is scheduled. And for a median of 3.6 days, which is similar to the volume and the duration of placebo, the volume would have been equivalent to 9 milligrams of placebo haloperidol, and it was given a median of 3.3 days. So I commented on this a little bit earlier, but you would think if Haldol effectively treated delirium, that the control group would have gotten more PRN doses and more of the other treatments like the propofol or the alpha agonists. And we didn't really see that in this study, which makes me think that the Haldol, and it might be, you know, we commented a little bit about the dose and it might be that the dose is low and maybe it's just not that effective for treating delirium at this dose. But I think consistent with MindUSA, that suggests to me that I'm not sure how great Haldol is at treating, at least acutely treating delirium. Yeah, it's interesting. They don't really have the granularity of data, at least in their main manuscript, to figure out that rescue dose. They said at least 72% of patients in both groups required at least one dose of the PRN, haloperidol, or placebo. As far as the use of rescue medications, the propofol, the alpha-2 agonists, the benzodiazepines, they were pretty equal between the groups. They were a little bit more alpha-2 agonists and a little more benzos in the placebo side, but it's probably reasonably offset by the increase of propofol on the haloperidol side. Yeah, table table two is interesting because it gives some idea. It's not the most granular you've ever wanted, but it gives some idea of the amount given. And, you know, in general, both groups got about three and a half daily doses both groups got 13 total doses when you include the PRN doses daily. And so I, I think there may be a little bit of a difference there. And maybe that's, you know, what we're kind of seeing overall. But in general, I'm not that impressed as a, wow, you know, the Haldol really, really had an effect in these patients. I mean, there's just not a lot of PRN doses in general. So perhaps, it, even though they didn't receive more PRN, that they have baseline 7.5 scheduled dose was effective. Yeah, but then you'd have to say, right, that they just in general aren't, they're more tolerant of the hyperactive delirium than probably in my practice, because the placebo group didn't get a ton of PRN doses either. Your point is fair. It may be that whether that's the practice or because they knew they were in a study, they were a little bit more tolerant of some hyperactive delirium and didn't just give a PRN every time somebody got hyperactive delirium. And so the differences between the groups while there, they weren't acted on. And this is not a very accurate measure of 
differences in delirium between the groups. That's, I think, a fair potential explanation for and, this. And ultimately, their primary outcome wasn't a difference in delirium, right? It was the hospital-free days. No, correct. Although they do have difference in delirium and coma as one of their reported exploratory outcomes. Yeah. Before we get to outcomes, there's one more thing I wanted to point out in Table 2. It was just the use of restraints during delirium. That was really interesting to me. Again, this might just be a cultural practice as an intensive care, but they only had 2% of their patients on restraints during delirium. Delirium. I would imagine in this population would have been higher. I think we said that 60% of these patients were on mechanical ventilation and maybe they're not counting soft wrist restraints and maybe they're talking about like more heavy duty restraints when they say restraints. But I don't know. That was a little bit odd to me. It jumped out. Yeah. 63% of the patients on mechanical ventilation, 45% of the patients with hyperactive delirium. Those two obviously are not mutually exclusive. So they have a significant, and it'll be more than 2% of their patients that were on mechanical ventilation with hyperactive delirium and weren't getting restrained, physically restrained. And it doesn't look like they're giving them a ton of medicine to chemically restrain them either. I think that you're correct in saying, uh, and you didn't specifically say this, but I know this is why you brought it up. Hmm, this is probably different than my practice or the practice that I'm used to seeing in my ICU. I I totally agree. And that's not a bad thing. It might reflect that we need to take a look at our practice. It's not unheard of that the baseline or control groups from trials make us reevaluate how we do things. Yeah, this may be something that we should be trying to reach. This may be, you know, a benchmark or something we're trying to emulate. And, you know, this is quote unquote role modeling for us. Wow, it'd be really nice if we only use 2% restraints in 2% of our patients. I I will say really quickly that uh, you may remember there's a trial from a number of years ago that actually looked at no sedation versus a sedation. And in the no sedation group, they actually had an increased presence of ICU personnel. So they had a bedside person that kind of sat there with the patient. And in that situation, I do know that that was not done in any of these hospitals. So you can't attribute this to that being the hospitals that that study was done in. But if your practice is more akin to that, then you may use less restraints than, you know, a situation where at least in our ICU, the nurse has two patients and can't be in one patient's room for the whole duration of their shift. Although sometimes it seems like they're in both patients' room for the entire duration of their shift. Their outcomes, this was a neutral trial. The mean days alive and free of the hospital is 35.8 in the haloperidol group, 32.9 in the placebo group for a mean difference of 2.9 days with a confidence interval that crosses zero, negative 1.2 to 7.0, and a p-value of 0.22. This was consistent in their adjusted model too. They did find a 7% difference in mortality and it favored the haloperidol group 36.3% versus 43.3% with a significant confidence interval, negative 13% to negative 0.6%, negative referring to difference in favoring haloperidol. They show this in their figure two, which is Kaplan-Meier curve for mortality, which starts to split before day five and they reach their difference around day 10, which holds through to 90 days, just from an eyeball. There was a numerical but not significant difference at the days alive and free of delirium and coma as well. Yeah, the the splitting at day five is uh, not bothersome to me. In general, these patients got medicine for a little bit less than day five, but you know, you might start seeing effect at day five. It's not like they got medicine for three days and then you saw a splitting of the survival at day 30 when you'd say, well, I don't know about that. It's also not like we talked about two weeks ago where they have a difference in survival at day zero where they may not have even gotten a dose yet. So the day five doesn't, doesn't bother me as much. What bothers me about that, you know, this may be me, right? There's lots of things that we don't understand and you'll probably chime in and say, and even more things that I don't understand, like Taylor Swift songs. But I don't, I don't know what the mechanism is. 
Like if you're not having a huge effect on delirium and coma-free days, and you're not having a huge effect on getting out of the ICU or hospital faster, how is Haldol potentially saving lives? We always say that once you know the answer, you can come back to the the mechanism. And maybe the mechanism is, is that these patients with especially the hyperactive delirium patients, the Haldol makes them so they're not as hyperactive and their care advances. So they're more likely to get extubated or they're more likely to get the next step in their care because they are less hyperactive. And that then prevents them from having complications, stepping back, whatever, that ultimately result in you know complications that are fatal to them. Sure, I guess it's possible, but it just seems like a lot of big steps to get there for how Haldol could potentially reduce mortality. Yeah, I, I consider myself a professional in the going back, taking a known result and explaining it away. It's really hard with the brain, I think for me, like I think I reasonably understand how the heart works, the lung works, the kidney works, but the brain is just a a big black box. And so it's, I think the hard part for me here is do I trust this signal, this secondary outcome, a component of the primary outcome for this thing that like we were both saying, we don't really understand, but it is the golden goose of critical care trials, right? Mortality. Yeah. And then I always love pimping you, but what did, what did mind USA find from a mortality standpoint? I'm just going to smile and say, I don't remember. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's not significant. We all knew that Mind USA wasn't significant. I went back and specifically looked at it because I was like, oh, maybe Mind USA, which is a smaller trial, right? There's only 180 patients instead of 500 patients in the Haldol and the placebo groups in that study. I said, oh, maybe they also have a small difference in mortality. And now we're starting to see a signal that may be consistent across it. Unfortunately, the mortality is actually uh, absolutely higher absolute number higher, not statistically significant, but higher in the Haldol group than in the placebo group, which also makes it hard because now we don't even have something that I can be like, well, it's kind of consistent across the two you know, big RCTs that I know of in this realm. I think just to throw another thing that we don't understand in the conversation, this is probably the right time to talk about that Bayesian analysis in intensive care medicine. I'm still learning the important metrics to look at. They say that the prior results were, quote, weakly informative and centered around no difference. So I think that's what they use for their priors for their Bayesian model. What sometimes is called a skeptical prior, meaning we don't think based off of previous data that there's a difference between these two. We're skeptical that there's a difference between these two. And it's essentially starting at the null hypothesis. Right. So even. Yeah. So using that, they found the probability of a clinically important benefit of haloperidol on days alive and free of the hospital was between 82.2 and 92.1%. And for their 90-day mortality, it was between 94.3 and 98.7%. This to me is, Bayesian analyses are kind of repackaging some things that I think when I'm reading frequentist analyses, right? So these confidence intervals that have their point estimate clearly on one side of favoring or against the intervention. And their p-values, this one's a little bit far, 0.22, but a p-value of 0.8, 0.9. It's like, okay, so we it's not black and white, but is there something there? Should I be paying attention to that? Am I saying, eh, it's probably helpful, right? 82%, 90% helpful? Yeah, I think that's what they're hoping that the Bayesian analysis will be informative in, is to say, okay, this didn't reach statistical significance, but, you know, just look at the overall data and give us an idea of which of these seem to be doing better and give us an idea of if you had to bet which one of these is more likely to be the better outcome than the other. Yeah. And there's sometimes with these outcomes, I I really don't care about, but for both days alive and free of the hospital and mortality, those are things that I would care about. And so we have taken this conversation 
sometimes to, well, what's the harm, right? So you're saying there's a 90, 85 to 95% benefit, depending on what you're looking at your outcome, what's the harm of haloperidol? And there are, are a lot of potential harms of haloperidol. Yeah, good Lord. Are we going back to the QT? Hypokalemia. QT prolongation. I mean, there is no pharmacologic agent that does not have side effects. And so it's, it's a pharmacologic agent, right? It's Haldol. So it clearly has side effects. It clearly is not zero risk. Uh, I think we have a pretty good idea of what its potential effects are because we've used it a long time and we used it in a lot of patients. So I think we have that idea, but you're right. This is one of those areas where you say, maybe I believe these results. Maybe I don't believe these results. Now, when I go to my practice, I have to say, I have to try and ascertain what I think the benefit is from these results, and then compare that to what I think the harm may be in the patient if I, if I give them Haldol. And I think it may be different for different patients. Like, for example, I may be more willing to tolerate giving Haldol to the hyperactive patient because I think even if these results are wrong, it might calm that patient down and make it easier for the nurse and make it easier for care and make it that sort of stuff. Whereas the hypoactive patient, this is a hard leap for me, right? The hypoactive patient is already not doing as much as I want them to do. And now I'm going to give them Haldol because maybe that saves their life. Man, it'd be really good to have some idea of how much you believe that and how, how real you think that result is. To go back to one of your points talking about like, oh, I might give it to my hyperactive patient, but not my hypoactive patient. Their forest plot of, and it's forest plot of days alive and out of the hospital, not mortality. For both hyper and hypoactive, the point estimate favors haloperidol. Yeah, but it's slightly right in the hyperactive group. I say that as a joke. I say that as a joke, right? It's like barely right in the hyperactive group. And both of them cross the null hypothesis, cross the line of neutrality or the null But they're hypothesis. not powered for that subgroup. Agreed. Yeah, completely agreed. And this is the part that honestly bothers me. And what I mean by that is, is that if these results are right, I should be giving my hypoactive patients to Haldol. I should be giving them two and a half milligrams three times a day. I'm not exactly sure how I dose PRNs in a hypoactive patient, but that might be why they end up with a low dose is because nobody gives PRNs in a hyperactive, hypoactive patient. Yeah, it would have been interesting to see that their doses split by their hypo and hyperactive delirium. I actually didn't look in the supplement for that. It might be there. Yeah. But if that result is real, and you can tell by the way I'm saying this, that I'm not entirely convinced it is, but I don't know for sure, then I should be changing my practice. I should be giving Haldol to these patients that are hypoactive. And the the one thing I will say that makes me a little bit more comfortable that I'm not hurting my patients by not, my hypoactive delirium patients by not giving them Haldol is that MindUSA has even more hypoactive delirium patients and found a smaller, in fact, it's on the other side, effect on mortality, suggesting that, you know, it's not a huge effect in the hypoactive delirium and therefore you're missing out on the benefit because you're not giving it to those patients. So we've been a little bit in circles in the discussion. So let me try to bring us back and summarize this and then close it out for us. So we have this trial, 8ICU, that suggests a trend towards benefit in days alive and free of the hospital, found a benefit in mortality, which again, they weren't powered for. It's equal in their hypo and hyperactive delirium. And separately, they published a Bayesian analysis that said, this is probably significant, but this is a medication that we don't know exactly how it's working. We don't know how exactly it's impacting mortality. And so we're a little bit skeptical. So Todd, you're on service right now. You, I think you've already made it clear you're not doing this in your hypoactive delirium patients. And you've made it clear that your practice prior to this is to give haloperidol as needed for hyperactive delirium. Will you consider scheduling your haloperidol 
for your hyperactylarian patients? Yeah, I, I think I'm different than you in the fact that I think I do schedule it some. And I think I don't start that way. So the question, I guess, is should I start it that way? I think I use it PRN. And then if the patient has gotten it PRN for two or three days or something, one or two days, maybe even I'll say, just give it PRN but like, or the, give it scheduled. But they say three days is like the limit of what they needed to. And then you see this all the time, right? Where you, you start something in the ICU, they transfer out to the floor with that medicine still on, and then they get discharged with that medicine. And hopefully some primary care provider is saying, well, why are you on this? Like, why are you on this ketiapine? Why are you on this yeah. haloperidol? Yeah, I mean, I guess that's an interesting way of looking at it. I think that stopping it when the patient no longer has delirium is probably an important... What I meant was to follow their protocol. That if you're, you yeah. schedule it early and yeah. then you follow their per- protocol of two consecutive, no yeah. delirium, then you stop it. That's yeah. what I meant. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's still in the realm of making sure that we have a protocol to stop it and it gets stopped. I mean, there are lots of things here that if I say, let me fully incorporate this into my practice, I have to start thinking about differently. The two and a half milligrams is a small dose for me. I don't think I use two and a half milligrams very much. So, But you know, seven and a half milligrams total over a day is a small dose. for me. I think that's a reasonable dose over a 24 hour period. I mean, do the nurses hate you? Cause like these patients are still punching the whole day. I think the most common dose that I give is five. Yeah, I think that's probably true. But if you give two fives, you're above seven and a half. I don't think that I usually need to get above two fives. Yeah, maybe not. Because usually I'm giving them something else. I think that might be the issue. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Like you're I might be starting multi, them on dexmedetomidine or something at that point. Yeah, that's fair. So this is early in my kind of interpretation of this trial and incorporation again into my practice. This has made me more comfortable using Haldol to treat delirium. So, you know, after Mind USA came out, I was a little uncomfortable with the maybe I shouldn't be using it at all if we can't say that it has any signal that looks like it might be beneficial. And as we've already talked about, nothing is harm free. Maybe I should just stop using it. And I didn't go all that way. Because you can't. I use less of it. What else are you going to do? Yeah. But now I think I'm more comfortable in using it. And I think the question on the plate for me, and I don't have the answer for the listeners, unfortunately, but I think the question on the plate to me is, should I use it more, more being scheduled, maybe a lower dose scheduled in my hyperactive, especially my hyperactive delirium patients based off of these, these results? And I don't, I say this a lot and I think it's a little bit of my way of copping out. I don't think you're wrong to do that. I'm not exactly sure that you're wrong if you say, I'm not going to change my practice and incorporate a lot of haloperidol use in my practice based off of eight ICU. I'm not going to come to you and say, hey, look at this trial. I think you're doing this wrong. So I think, you know, this is a win-win for a lot of people and that I think you could probably kind of continue your practice and have some support for it. Let me try and be a little provocative here. If you were delirium, um, uh, if I was a delirium, Good if start. You were a delirium. Yeah. I don't I've never been a if delirium. If you were a delirium um advocate, like a person who All invented All patients their... should have delirium. Yeah. Advocate for delirium. <laughs> this was going really well. If you were a person who'd spent their career with delirium and, you know, studied delirium and, you know, were just a huge delirium person, would you use this as your potential causal finding for delirium and mortality? And what I mean by that is, is it possible that Haldol 
treated the delirium, but it was a little bit hard to see because the signal on like alive and out of the hospital is a tough signal, right? People get discharged at different times based off of not delirium related things for sure. And whether they get readmitted, it's not going to be based off of delirium. And yet, even though that's a hard signal, there's something there where you go, huh, that's not statistically significant, but I kind of wonder if that difference is something I care about clinically. And then you see a mortality signal and you go, there it is. The haloperidol is treating the delirium as evidenced by the days alive and out of the hospital or the days alive and free of coma and delirium, although not a huge effect in there, maybe a real effect. And then it also has this mortality signal. So those are the data that I'm going to put my stake in the ground and say, here it is. We have data now that shows that delirium is associated with mortality. And if you treat delirium with Haldol in this case, uh, you can reduce mortality and therefore there may be a causative effect between delirium and mortality. Yeah, this we've talked about this before, but this is going into feeding my priors, right? You set you set me up as a my priors where I believed in treating delirium is going to help patients, and now I have a trial that one of their secondary outcomes is there. I think for me, it might just be me being cautious. Again, we're talking about copping out. I probably use that as the rationale of getting a trial that is the larger definitive study on haloperidol for on mortality in critically ill patients with delirium, hypo or hyperactive. Yeah. The US FDA, you know, we complain about it a lot. It isn't perfect. But the US FDA, in order to approve something for an indication, usually will ask you for two definitive trials. This could be one, but by itself, it's not going to fulfill the criteria for two. There are extenuating circumstances that sometimes they'll approve things based off of one. But I think if you took this to the FDA and said, I want an indication for haloperidol to treat delirium in critically ill patients, I think they'd say, give us another study. Like, we need more certainty in this. And I think that, at least for me clinically, is where I am. Do you want that next trial to be a Bayesian approach? Just from the front, forget the frequentists, then just start with the Bayesian approach? In this Bayesian analysis, the hospital free days was 82 to 92%, right. and then the mortality was 94 to 98%. And you still are not going to change your practice and give this to your hypoactive delirium patients, even though we're saying yeah. the lower end of the conference interval is a 94% benefit to mortality. Yeah. So, so I'd say maybe, again, maybe I don't understand it. Maybe that's because you don't understand it as well as my mentor and my teacher. But if you're asking me if I want to do this Bayesian or Frequentist up front, if I really felt strong about Bayesian, I think I would need that Frequentist analysis to help convince the skeptics like us or maybe L the uninformed. Listen, like there, are, there are two potential reasons that mentees don't learn. One is, is that the mentor is just not a very good teacher. The other is, is that the mentee is just not a very good learner. I'm not going to comment on what I think the relationship might be here, but I just want to set forth that, you know, there are two, at least two potential reasons there. And you didn't rule out both. Correct. That's fair. Uh, let me maybe say the last thing I'll say on this, which is some of this is my prior, I think, but some of it also is some of my take of, I'm not exactly sure that I believe this mortality signal also has to do with trial characteristics. A, they gave a pretty low dose of this overall, I think. B, they don't have a huge effect on delirium, so I don't understand all of the mechanistic pathway. C, I think these patients are a little bit different than mine. And it might be good that they might be better at doing critical care medicine than me because they're only using 2% restraints and you know not as much sedatives and that sort of stuff. But that doesn't change the fact- Wouldn't that bias you towards the null? Like if their control arm is better? Well, not necessarily, because it could be that 
in my group, I mask the effect of Haldol because I'm giving them other things and restraining them makes them have more delirium and Haldol doesn't treat it when you still have the nidus there to give it to them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Fair. Right. So it, it might, you might be right, but it also could be that, that it doesn't, which would essentially be me saying haloperidol may work in their environment, but in my environment, it may not work because my nidus for delirium, my duration of delirium, my cause of delirium may be different than their cause of delirium. I think that's where I am right now is, is that I'm just not sure that this result would extrapolate into my population. I do think, again, it's more information that makes me more comfortable saying, you know, look, this patient is really agitated and I'm concerned about how hyperactive they are and they might have a danger to themselves or somebody else. I feel like I now feel really comfortable that I can try and use haloperidol to kind of overcome that and it's safe for the patient. But I'm still not to the full point of, you know, I'm going to schedule this three times a day in my hypoactive delirium patients because it's going to result in a lower mortality. All right. We had a nice long discussion on 8ICU. We were going to talk about START AKI as our old article, but we've decided that we are going to put that off for now, put it on our docket to talk about, potentially pair it with another renal replacement related article. And we'll, we wanted to devote the whole time to uh, 8ICU for this because we thought we had a good discussion. So Eddie and Todd will be back with a brand new invention next time in two weeks. And that's all we have for episode 10 of the ICU Ed and Todd cast. If you have any questions or you want to tell Todd that he got pretty much everything wrong or anything else you want us to talk about in the future, you can hit us up at icuedandtodcast at gmail.com. You can hit us up on the social at icucast at Ed Chan, that's E-D-Q-I-N, and at Todd Rice underscore ICU. Thank you, Todd. Thank you to the study teams for their hard work, and congratulations for another completion of a trial for us to interpret. Thank you, Mike Gannon, for the music. Thank you to everyone listening, and we will see you next time. Let's go save some lives. I see you. I see you, baby. Yeah, so um, I told them I didn't really know lyrics to any songs, and they said, nobody? And I said, well, like, I know Ice Ice Baby. And then Melissa was up there and she goes, oh, well, you should start the podcast by saying, all right, stop, collaborate and listen. But do you even know that? Did you know that was part yeah. of Ice Ice Baby? Yeah. Do you know anything beyond that? Uh, Ice is back with a brand new edition. Did you, I know said that we bef- should... Did you know that before? Absolutely. And I said we could change it to Eddie and Todd are back with a brand new edition. All right, I'll let you do it. The other one that I know songs of, which is really bad, is uh, Baby Got Back. <laughs> I think it's Baby Got Back. You think it's Baby no, Got Back? It's, no, it's not. Sorry. It's not? How do you not know Baby Got Back? It's, uh, I know Baby Got Back like the chorus, but I don't know all the songs to it. It's My Posse's on Broadway. I don't know what that song is. Yeah, you do. Legitimately, I don't know. Me and that sensation, no home away from home in the Black Ben's limo with the cellular phone. Who sang that? (laughs) I think it's actually... I I don't even want to know at this point. So the three songs you know, you know... I know like... Vanilla Ice, Ice Ice Baby, you know Sir Mix-A-Lot, Baby Got Back, and whatever that other song was. My Posse's on Broadway. Yeah. So those are three songs you know. To turn back the other way, I want to eat it. Oh, <laughs> uh, this will be a good ending to the podcast. Posse up. This podcast is made for educational purposes. The content provided in this podcast and in any length materials is not intended and should not be construed as medical advice and should not be used to diagnose or treat any medical condition. It's inevitable we try to stay away from opinions, but all opinions represent our own and not of any entity that we work at. Please keep this in mind as you enjoy the podcast.